Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Dr. Carol Francis Talk Radio Show. Let's make life happen together with authors, scientists, researchers, both inside the box and outside the box of understanding so that you can live a life full of your success, curiosity, enjoyment, happiness, and richness of life in every respect. Let's go beyond our limits and let's help others go beyond their limits as well. Welcome. Oh, this is definitely going beyond your limits today. Is we're going to have Nick Bellardes join us from a book called A People's History of the Peculiar. But prior to getting started with that very intriguing discussion with Nick, I wanted you to meet Dr. Heather Rivera. Good morning, Dr. Heather. Hoping she can hear us. <laughs> Good morning, Dr. Heather. Can you hear us? <laughs> okay. Dr. Heather has uh, a wonderful heartfelt opportunity here to support a young man called Aiden and A-Y-D-A-I-N and it's called Team Aiden Fundraiser and on behalf of his parents um, to try to uh, help raise money to be able to help him work through stage four neuroblastoma and Dr. Heather as soon as she can hear me and has come back I'm going to see if maybe the switchboard is tricking on her um, as soon as, as soon as we can come back, I'm here. Talk a little bit about what she's doing. Okay, there you go. Hi, Dr. Heather. Tell us a little bit about <laughs> Team Aiden Fundraiser. Yes, um, you know we have a research institute. We do past life regression research, and so I found out about this little three-year-old boy that has stage four neuroblastoma, and we decided to do a fundraiser for him. The School of Multidimensional Healing Arts and Sciences in Irvine is donating the venue, and um, oh, so great. on January. July 12th, Saturday, from 11 to 1, we're doing a group regression. The cost is $30, and 100% of the proceeds is going to Team Aiden, which is this, the family is going to just take care of the boy. And, um, you know, costs have gone up for t- taking care of their children and trying to be with his son in the hospital. He's been going under chemo and radiation and surgery. He's a very sick little boy. So we're just trying to get back and put this fundraiser together for him. Well, perfect. And what I have down here is that for them to contact you at 949-752-5272 to reserve a spot or go to www.smhas.com, which is the School of Multidimensional Healing Arts and Sciences, to be able to join you July 12th from 11 to 1 for your experience with past life regression and definitely to support uh, Aiden in his recovery. Thanks so much, yes. Dr. Heather Rivera. We will keep this posted on our site, and I hope everybody will listen in on your radio show with me. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Heather. Thank We're you. We're going to move okay. over to you're welcome. We're move over okay. to Nick Bellardes. How are you doing? Good morning, Nick Bellardes. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing. I'm doing great. I just uh, I called in and I, I thought I was going to be late. And I'm glad I got here on time. 
Well, you know, we had a little bit of announcement ahead of you, so that's perfect, folks. This man is going to entertain you with all sorts of different facts about the world you live in. No longer can you look at this world like it's a boring place. No longer can you experience history as some sort of yawning stuff you have to take a test on. No longer are you going to look at your own health as something that's just so basic and, and dull. You're going to intrigue us today, Nick Bellardi. Is that too much of a request? <laughs> it's not too much of a request. I, ho- I hope I can entertain you. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is all coming from your book, and I want us to start with those puzzling elements. And while you're getting your ideas as to what puzzling elements you want to share with the listeners, folks, this is coming from the book of People's History of the Peculiar which is described as a freak show of facts, random obsessions, and astounding truths. And Nick Bellardes has compiled this. Uh, this book is intriguing. It's fun. It's definitely good for writers who need some strange facts or for you that need some interesting laughs. But I actually found some good health tips here. So, Nick Bellardes, give us some health tips. Well, my health tips, at least in, in this book, the ones I've researched, they're they're not necessarily you go to the doctor and 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 treat something in a, the usual way and you get medication. These are natural remedies, and I, you know, you can go to my book for all kinds of lists. There's lots of lists in it, and one of them is, uh, you know, laughter can cure a stomachache and can help cure constipation. Uh, if you have a nosebleed. You can run an, something very cold, maybe like an ice cube, on the back of your neck, which can open up or close up the blood vessels and stop a nosebleed. So there's, there's lots of strange health cures like that, as well as there's one that gets listed in the book, which is Dem, actress Demi Moore used leeches. I believe it, the number was 45 leeches on her body at one time to help uh, cure the toxicity levels in her blood. So there's all kinds of uh, strange remedies in there. Oh, tell us about turmeric. I think people want to hear that as we're entering into bathing suit era. <laughs> there's, there's one in there, I believe, and I don't have all my lists memorized, but I believe there's one that has to do with, and you, and you may have read this before uh, and remember better than me, that has to do with ketchup and blonde hair. Is that the one that you're, you're leaning towards? Oh, no, yeah, that's a funny one as well. Tell us that one. <laughs> well, if you if the pool water is changing your hair color, you could use ketchup to bring back the, your natural hair color. And I'm assuming it might be the vinegar reacting in your hair. But that's maybe in a ketchup along with some other natural ingredient. And you mentioned as now well. What ha- uh, go ahead. What ha- what happens when those blondes are fake? <laughs> you know, well that that could be a problem. Uh, you mentioned. Um, <laughs> You, you mentioned strange ailments, too, and I did a lot of interviews uh, in compiling uh, information for this book and the strange histories and the, the interesting maladies. And one man who I talked to, and I believe he was in England, and he suffered from an ailment he called Alice in Wonderland Syndrome. Now, imagine if you were sitting on the couch and you looked down at your feet and it looked like your feet were melting into the floor, or if you looked at your hand and it looked and and you perceived your your fingers to be stretching and becoming rubbery and that's the, the strange type of ailment that this man had and I, I don't know about you but I can't imagine going through some kind of ailment where your depth perception has gone totally wonky. Huh. 
That is that is very interesting. I know you have a lot of intriguing, um, bizarre diseases. What's another one besides the besides that one you just mentioned, like the 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 well, worm disease? Well, there's guinea worm disease in there, but there's one that I think is stranger than guinea worm disease, uh, which is Morgellons disease, which is people around the world who start believing they have fibers under their skin or in their eyes, and they believe that they're pulling fibers uh, out of their body. And the research that I've done it's unknown whether this is an actual malady or some kind of mass hysteria that, that's gone on around the world. So that's what's very strange about Morgellons disease is, is it actually real or not? And these are some of the questions that are sort of proposed throughout the entire book, you know, and some of the weird history and the mysterious places and what's real and what's not real. And, I, you know, I want to leave the reader to decide. So that's why I include something like Alice in Wonderland syndrome. Is it an actual real malady? Can more can other people get it or is this just one man's claim? Hmm. That's interesting. It reminds me of the book by um, Oliver Sacks and he's a, a, a psychoneurologist and he talks about very strange phenomenon where the brain is wired in such a way that a person can't, for example, recognize a person or every time they see a hat they think it's their wife. And it truly is because of the way the brain is neurologically wired. So these strange and bizarre experiences, we don't know what necessarily the source is. What's another uh, intriguing phenomenon that grabs you? Well, one that comes to mind is Cotard's delusion and what you were just talking about and how our minds can play tricks on us and, and... uh, imagine feeling hopeless and, and you can't recognize, and you're so hopeless, you're so full of despair that maybe you feel as if you're dead and maybe you start thinking you're dead. You start not recognizing people around you. Maybe you start thinking the external world is has gone kaput too. Maybe you believe other people are dead and you're in some kind of a paradise or something and, and that's Cotard's delusion. Uh, and I think that, to me, that is a very strange malady where your reality is so skewed. And and this is where your expertise comes in. I would love to hear what you think about that may be one of some of the causes for people to be in such a disreality where they think they're dead or they think other people are imposters, even their pets are imposters. Oh, my, my mind is racing on all sorts of things. I think I need to research this a little bit more before I start making articulating psychological facts. <laughs> you know, of course, dissoci- you know, dissociative personality is uh, or multi personal. Uh, oh my gosh, the uh, dissociative personality with the MPDs and schizophrenia, paranoia, the delusions along those lines, of course, have those sorts of hallucinogenic processes going on. But there are individuals that have such traumas in their life. And those traumas make them feel alienated from everything going around them, that it's all going awry. And so perhaps that's related, but I actually don't specifically know. It would be fascinating to see what the research is behind that. Well, let's go to Mars. What about Mars and methane? Oh, boy. Now now you're digging into parts of the book that uh, (laughs) get into into science. And, you know, what's interesting about this book is it has so many facts. It has so much science, it has so much history, 
it has so much that people can dig into. And, 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 and I would offer this up, too, that people can go to my website at nicholasbelardes.com, N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S-B-E-L-A-R-D-E-S, or go to the Dr. Carol Francis uh, uh, online radio website, and you'll probably have links up there and things, things like that. And, and then you can ask, ask me questions about some of, this, some of the specific science where we could really possibly dig in, and I can even do more, more research. I think there's an idea with, when it comes to Mars and life and life as we know it and some of the building blocks of life, and that can possibly exist in methane. And if enough traces of methane, and I believe that that. I think that we're going to discover life in outer space, and especially on the microbial level with microbes that can exist within methane and huge pockets of methane. I think the building blocks aren't just going to be on Earth. They're going to be throughout the universe. I don't think we are exclusive to the building blocks of life. Why, why would we on Earth, why would this planet have the only building blocks when it, when uh, the other forces of physics and nature and the universe are at play? Why wouldn't they be at play right. everywhere? Yeah. And so methane gas is part of mo- possibly some microcovial, oh, my goodness, these words are too big for me today, <laughs> <laughs> of existence. Uh, and so we're going to be able to pull those molecules apart from the methane to create oxygen. Is that what you're contemplating? Well, I think that's, that's part of it is... is um, as well as, you know, I'm, we've got people who are going to possibly go to Mars with Mars One in, what, the next 20 years? I forget what date that is. There's, there's the, what NASA is going to do, and then there's that whole Mars One program. And they've got to be able right. to go there and, and utilize uh, what they find in the atmosphere to create more oxygen. There's no way that uh, a colony is going to be able to go with enough oxygen tanks to last them 100 years, 200 years. 500 years. So they've got to be able to have those building blocks there, as well as, you know, let's hope that the building blocks for life, like I mentioned, are everywhere in the universe. You have some very interesting things in the science uh, section that relate to what you're saying, such as do stars watch their weight? Do baby stars gobble up their cosmic food? Are there cannibals among the stars? (laughs) These are really funny ways of looking at these phenomena. Okay, which one of those do you want to describe to us? Well, I think that with this book, I'm trying to offer some different perspectives on how we can look at science, how we can describe the events within our solar system, within our cosmos, uh, instead of saying something like, well, gravity is pulling these stars towards each other and, uh, and they're just crashing into each other in these cosmic explosions. Well, Sometimes there are things going on in the universe that are really hard to explain, and it's easier for me, for me to explain that one star can, can feed off another and get its energy from another star. And when stars are being born in these huge protostellar clouds that are just, how can we even describe how large a protostellar cloud is? It's beyond, oh, yeah. it's beyond our, our human comprehension to be able to talk in such, uh, in such size. But there's these dense clusters of stars that are at the center of our galaxies, which is really interesting because some people say there's a black hole at the center of our galaxy that's, yes. that's gobbling up. We could say that black hole is cannibalizing the stars around. 
so I think I think that's just an interesting way to discuss science. Um, you know, I, as a as a professor, I used to teach a lot of history, and one of the challenges was always how can I talk about history or science or disease and and just reach people and just talk to them on a level that they're going to understand and get it. Oh yeah, I, I get that. If you're talking about you know. Uh, can, can something cannibalizing something else? I can kind of get a mental picture for for that. Well, yeah, I know you are a historian and you are a writer, so clearly the whole process of turning what many teenagers are always, oh, I hate history; it's so boring because it goes from war to war, victor to victor. Oh, there's so much more to history, but are they being taught it? And here in your book, you you share details that make history like really. Wow, that's exciting. What are some other events that you find bizarre and intriguing that uh, you know people you think people really should soak in and contemplate? Well, some of the historical events that take place are surrounded by well, you can almost say all historical events are surrounded by mystery and 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 just to talk about history for a moment, the idea of history. And the idea of mystery, too, that I think that within people we have this, we get this rush from mystery and discovery, and I think that can happen with, with knowledge. It's just kind of the same thing that happens when you go see a movie or you're watching a, a thriller or, or a detective film. You're, you're right there with a detective. You're, you're uncovering the clues alongside uh, someone in, let's say, a, a horror film, a serial killer movie where the detective's trying to, trying, to, trying to discover the serial killer before he gets his next victim. And that's kind of the way that rush you get at the movies when you're finding out information that has to do with mysteries. I think that if we really get into knowledge and history, we start to feel that way. We can start to really uncover the mysteries of the past and it can be really exciting. And I talk about one of my old history professors, a Dr. Oliver Rink at, at CSU Bakersfield. I took classes with him many year, years ago, and I loved, and I think he was sort of passing on a story about how history works. And he was talking about history is what's illuminated in the light. So he liked to talk, tell a story about a drunk who was looking for his car keys at night. And the drunk is hanging on to the light post, and a man walks up and says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm looking for my car keys. And, uh, and, he, and he says, well, where'd you park your car? And the drunk points way down the street. <laughs> and the man asks, well, why are you looking here? And he says, well, this is where the light is. And so history is kind of like that, where the historical record is what illuminates the past, but the historical record is such a tiny part of what actually happened, of what philosophers like R.G. Collingwood say, would say about the past, that the past is everything that has ever happened. Well, that's, right. that's like looking at the, that's like trying to understand the universe as a, as a really big place, like we were talking about a moment ago. The past is a really big place, and it's filled with so much mystery and so many interesting events and I think that the historical record only illuminates a small part of it. So, so I try to include in this book some, some events that are just a little bit different or events that we can think of in a little bit different way, in a little bit different way. So one of them 
is when we think of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., but I think people don't, at least here on the West Coast, I don't, I've hardly ever heard discussion, even in history courses, why is our capital in Washington, D.C.? Why, why is it there of all places? And one of the questions I had when I was in graduate school years ago, which is why I could have fun with this book and sort of theorize about this, is, is if our nation, in the early Republic of America, our government was meeting in Philadelphia, and Philadelphia was one of the most enlightened cities in the world, not just in early America, but in the whole world, in the whole Western world anyways. And so if Philadelphia was such an enlightened city, and, it, and our government was meeting there, why, why didn't it stay our nation's capital? And I think that's a great mystery. And I start to look at something really odd, which is disease. And the idea that in the 1790s, when, the, when our forefathers were discussing, hey, let's, let's build a capital, let's build a capital uh, somewhere cool, uh, not climate-wise, but someplace pretty pretty neat, you know. And there were these epidemics of yellow fever that struck Philadelphia in the early 1790s. And these epidemics were so horrific that I believe in the, the 1793 epidemic wiped out about a third of the city. And, and another huge portion of the city just left to escape this plague. And they didn't know what caused the plague. They, this, you know, science, what it was uh, in the 1790s, there was no explanation for yellow fever that made sense. Uh, they didn't know that it came from uh, uh, 80s Egypti mosquitoes in swamp-like conditions, feeding off an infected host, and then spreading the disease. Because we know that mosquito will bite one person and then might land on somebody else. And if you don't know that's what's causing a disease to spread, well, a disease can just get out of control. And yellow fever came from, from uh, I believe, a Caribbean islands or someplace where somebody left one of those uh, uh, tropical zones infected, and then um, they carried the infection to the, to the Pennsylvania coastline, and then we had these infected people on ships and then an infected people on the coast, and uh, this was at a, such a crucial time in our nation's history that I offer up the explanation that maybe disease had something to do with it. Are these enlightened mm -hmm. thinkers who, you know, they, they couldn't talk to each other on smartphones. They didn't have email. If they were leaving the city and getting it, and the city is sort of leaving a bad taste in their mouth, why do we want to have the seat of our government in some place where these, where these epidemics, these, these horrific epidemics are breaking out. And so that's it's one of the subtle. events that I... Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Yeah, such subtle facts that, you know, could have influenced people that we really don't have record on because no one's going to actually make that a, a, a major component of such a huge decision. And, yes, the, the band of the enlightened ones were, that they really did shift. That's, a, that's an amazing way to look at history in terms of trying to figure out what the undercurrents are that, move people along to make major decisions. Do you think there are any interesting stories that apply to our current political situation that come out of your book? Our current political situation? Our, our current or political or, 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 or,
Well, I mean, we can talk about the – well, for one, I list in this book uh, some of the mis- other mysteries of Washington, D.C. kind of come to mind because that's current. I'm, now, I'll try to get think up an, an event, too, because there's so many events that I read. I read the news like crazy, and obviously, as a journalist, I'm always uh, reading the news. But um, – you know, I think the architectural mysteries of Washington disease are one where even currently today you could explore some of the mysteries of Washington D.C. Where uh, is is there an onk sort of shape to the Capitol building along with portions of nearby streets? People can go to Google Maps and and look at this some of this and decide for themselves. The Washington Monument is an obelisk that, and what does that obelisk represent? It's very interesting, some of our nation's architecture that we take for granted that we could look at and say, hey, uh, where did that come from? Why why is that there? If the Washington Monument's design is an obelisk with Egyptian origins, Ramses II had had 14 uh, similar uh, obelisks in Tanis. And... um, the original purpose was to proclaim a king's power. And, um, you know, are there connections between such obelisks and some of the, the supernatural sides of religion and maybe some of the darker sides of religion? Uh, so it can, get, it can get very interesting. Now, of course, um, when it comes to current events... Go ahead. Yeah, it reminds me of Dan Brown's novels where he's always pulling these factoids, these bizarre connections that actually do seem to have tremendous amount of congruence, such as a pyramid there or uh, at certain columns. There are a number of different, uh, like 13, 33 numbers being evident in all sorts of different ways and uh, the the structure of all sorts of different buildings. We do not come out of... uh, out of nowhere, we have a lot of history behind us uh, that's even in the architecture of it. But you wanted to take us on to another venture. What was that? Well, I think in terms of things that happened that that connected today in this book, and one that comes to mind would be would would have to do with uh, maybe some of the wars that are going on and America's involvement with Afghanistan and Iraq. And maybe this idea that um, people, and, and it's, it's a difficult topic to talk about on the radio because I don't want to be taken the wrong way, but I think that there's something that goes on with war and the mysteries of it that we could talk about the strangeness of people falling under the sol- what's called a soldier spell or even the idea of... Uh, Oh, what is a soldier spell? A soldier spell uh, is really interesting because men who fight in war who suffer from PTSD and, and whatnot, and the idea that you know soldiers feel, often feel that civilians just don't understand them. They feel, as you would know, you know the, their feelings of isolation, their feelings of, I've been somewhere that that you're never going to go, hopefully. So how can you understand where I've been? And I remember studying a historian, John Keegan, who hadn't fought in war, and he was one of the only professors, he's British, 
and he worked for the London Daily Telegraph as well. And he uh, wrote a book called A Soldier's Spell, and he talked about it too, how soldiers sort of fall into a kind of spell when they're in combat. And it's, and it's interesting because I've never really seen that sort of spell uh, described anywhere else. We've seen it in movies where I believe actors try to sort of capture that soldiers walking back from a skirmish and they've got this blank stare on their face. And sometimes we see that in battle scenes in the movies, with the stare people get on their face. And how do we truly describe that this spell of war that men fall under? And I think that's something that obviously goes on and on and on throughout the course of history. And people can... And one of the things about my book, too, is I really think this book is a sort of gateway to knowledge. If you really want to dig in further, then, then you, for one, yeah, you pick up a copy of my book, uh, hopefully, and then you go read John Keegan's book, or you, you dig into a subject like that, and you can just go for miles, so to speak, and, and start really digging in to see if you think the soldier spell exists. I think another thing that has to do uh, with this book is the idea of deserters in, uh, in the military and how many there actually are and how the the media doesn't often talk about the people deserting from war, the American soldiers who leave their posts, who flee, who don't come back. Who, and that number is in the thousands, the thousands. And I think people don't, people don't realize how many soldiers. In fact, if we want to relate it to today, is that idea to today is, uh, and I can't think of his name, but if you've been reading the news or, or watching uh, TV news or radio news the last couple of days, then you read about the U.S. government trading five uh, Taliban, who were, it's just very controversial, five Taliban for an American soldier who had been captive for five years. The question is, was he, de- was he deserting? And that's been a sort, sort of taboo topic in the news, as I allude to, uh, that people don't want to talk about that. Does it have to do with pa- patriotism, nationalism in our country and other countries? I believe, uh, and there's a there's a list in in my book that people can go and find as well that has to do with a list of desertions in in history. And uh, I don't have that list in front of me, but one of them that I remember that's on it has to do with I believe World War One and uh, has to do with uh, some people who were thought to be deserters in the past, but now history is looking at their, them different. Sometimes people might have a good reason and to desert. That people maybe, are, aren't get, maybe some people aren't getting the care that they deserve while they're soldiers in the military. That's another controversial topic today that we could talk about where a lot of veterans feel like, felt like they didn't have the proper care in the military or the proper care as a veteran. So. Okay. Thank you. Well, let's, let's move on uh, from this topic relevant to the news about health care, about soldiers returning. I, I've written my book on reuniting soldiers with their families. It's a very important topic. And please, individuals, feel free to, once again, pick up a people's history of the peculiar. We're talking to Nick Ballardes because it's those serious uh, topics that you will also find facts about 
Now let's go to the mysterious, if we can, Nick. Let's talk about those mysterious places that people visit. And while you consider which ones of your book in, in, in your book are your favorite, uh, this weekend we discovered that island in Venice, in Italy, that was up for auction. And while that wouldn't be totally peculiar, since we know that Italy is in financial difficulty and needs to sell some of its assets, this island is considered the most haunted place in the entire planet. Researchers have gone out there, but not enough. Over 160,000 souls have died there from the yellow plague, the bubonic plague, the, the, and military exclusion or people who had gone crazy and then moving it into taking care of the elderly. And now they're wanting to sell it for either a resort or for children. <laughs> children play. So I thought, what a strange thing. is What a strange and peculiar place that I would have never heard about until it went up for auction last month. So with that story about strange and mysterious locations, Nick, what would be some of your favorite that you mentioned in your book that people might actually have fun visiting while they're either in the U.S. or beyond? Well, one I was uh, actually flipping through the pages of my book to, to look up because I want to get the, the name right and I'm not finding it, but it's called this, I believe it's called the Stephon's Dome. And it's one of the... Uh, old churches, old cathedrals in Europe. And uh, I'm not remembering exactly where it is. People could Google it or actually buy my book and find the information. And it has beneath it what's called an ossuary. Oh, and what also is interesting about this cathedral is over the door, the entrance, it used to have this huge bone of a mastodon. And it was, it was kept there above the door just sort of as this idea that that our Earth was roamed by giants, mm. and we don't we don't see these giants anymore, and so that's mm. a very interesting mystery to have on church. But what beneath, and and I'm talking about this because you were talking about the mysterious island where so many souls perished because of the plague, and this ossuary, which is beneath Stefan's dome, and you can take a tour of it actually. And somebody who I talked to recently, who'd taken one or two tours of the ossuary said that they, they weren't advertised. You had to know about it. And when you take this tour, it goes beneath the cathedral to where many, many people and uh, many, many bones are kept of tens of thousands of people who perished in the plague uh, in the Middle Ages. And what's interesting is that there were convicts who were made to work down in these pits of, of corpses who had to um, take care of this whole mess. And I can't imagine what an awful, hellish place that was during such an, an awful time. But at the same time, beneath a cathedral of all places. Mm-hmm. And so you can take a tour of what's called an ossuary and, and see this bone graveyard where where so many people's uh, bones are kept, including uh, mm-hmm. the, some of the bones of the Habsburgs from the Habsburg Empire. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Here's, here's another series of things you can do just on your summer vacation. You can go see the Serpent Mound or the Toxic Mutants of Helltown. These are all near, near in Ohio or near Ohio. Tell us a little bit about these very strange locations. I've uh, studied these. These are very fascinating. We don't think of our U.S. land as, as 
having such huge pyramids. We think of that as Egypt alone. (laughs) But here we have these huge mounds from our ancient history. Tell us some of that information. It's, you know, I've had the, the, the pleasure of spending a couple of summers in northeastern Ohio, and including in, in Helltown. And it's, that's not the actual name of the place. It's in Helltown. Uh, it's, Helltown includes a, a small, very small town on just a couple of streets called Boston Township, which is by an, a ski resort. I, I want to say it's in Summit County. And that is near another small town of Peninsula, Ohio. And you can walk from one to the other along the ruins of the Ohio and Erie Canal, which is a, if, if you love to do creepy walks, I would recommend walking from Boston Township to Peninsula, Ohio at night uh, through the woods in, and um, in, a, in this place considered Helltown where uh, there's been rumors of, toxic mutants and people catching strange uh, muscle-borne diseases and uh, of, of haunts there, satanic, rumors of satanic worship, rumors of chemical spills, uh, uh, mysterious uh, dri- drivers and driverless cars, um, and uh, as well, and what I think is the most mysterious is in an Indian mound in Boston Township that has a cemetery that's been that uh, or a cemetery has been on this mound since I believe the 1700s. So you're talking about an, an Indian mound that is I, I don't know how old it is, but I'm guessing it could it, some of these Indian mounds are dated to thousands of years old. Now I don't know about the Indian mounds in northeastern Ohio, but if you you said you've studied them as well. Some of them are thousands and thousands of years old. And um, I, I find that particular Indian mound very interesting because some of the people in that community believe the mound has mystical powers. In fact, I talked to a woman whose family built, they actually built yurts, which are these perfectly round tents. I think of like the tents on the Mongolian steeps, you know, the Mongolian hordes, you know, they had yurts. Uh, and I, thought, I think that's interesting too that uh, people are, people build those in North America and sell those. But I talked to a woman who she would ride her horse into the cemetery, kind of sneak it onto the grounds, and she believed that there was a uh, a mysterious energy and a very positive energy that came from from those particular Indian mounds. And there's what's also interesting is that in this area. And, and and rightly so. There's a lot of hidden Indian mounds, even in people's backyards. Uh, they're not allowed to give. Uh, they're not allowed to talk about them. They're not allowed to to give out information of where they're exactly located. There's Indian mounds in uh, hidden in the forest. And and why are they hidden? Well, for the same reason, many many Native American historical sites are hidden throughout the U.S. in mountains and deserts that the average layperson doesn't know about because people go out and destroy uh, their heritage. They destroy these artifacts. There's so many thousands upon thousands of of Indian mounds that are just gone, bulldozed, taken down. We'll never truly know uh, where they all were. And 
and we can really we could talk an hour about uh, possibly about you know the different cultures. Of, you know, there was what three, but at least at least three different cultures of Indian mound people, uh, the mound builders, the what the, the Hopewell. Uh, the other one's not even coming to mind. I, I don't get too deep within my book. Uh, once again, my book is uh, People's History of the Peculiar is more like a gateway to knowledge. If you're really interested, if you're really fascinated, then be a knowledge hunter like me. Be a bizarre fact finder, and, and you could really dig in to especially the mysteries of some place like Helltown, which some of the mysteries are fun, you know, did the Satanists really exist and mutilate animals? Well, maybe they did. Maybe it's a hoax. But you, what isn't a hoax is the Indian mound culture, and as well as as uh, this idea of the Peninsula Python, which people thought a giant python snakes roamed around uh, in the woods there. And they, they even have snake festivals, python snake festivals in northeastern Ohio since the 19. Uh, 1940s when this urban legend came about. How strange is that? We think of pythons, we might think of a, you, you mentioned current events um, and tying my book to current events. We think of uh, the pythons that are in, in, on the loose in Florida because so many people have abandoned their, their pythons and anacondas uh, into the wild that now Florida has um, snake hunters that, who go out and try to kill these snakes because there's so many of them. Uh, and they kill livestock. They kill. Uh, uh, they're 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 just they're a hazard. They kill the 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 animals in the natural habitat, which some of them may be in, endangered and so forth. Um, but that that's held held town for you. A mysterious place with lots of mystery surrounding it. Well, tell us the mystery about Las Vegas, because lots of people go visit there, and it would be fun to turn some of those visits into knowing the esoteric or the eccentric aspects of Las Vegas that you mentioned in your book. I once had the coolest job of all time, which was being a creative writer for the Fremont Street Experience, which in the old town of Las Vegas, which is called Block 16, or it was called Block 16 when it was the Old West and the around the 1900, and you only had just that little area around Fremont Street, and those are those are some of the oldest casinos in Las Vegas. The, I don't remember what year the Fremont Street was closed off and turned into a promenade. They have the big light show there, and so I, my job was just to think up kooky, fun ideas for that light show. So I spent a lot of time in Las Vegas, three or four years, getting to know the locals, talking about uh, urban legends, and one that really stuck with me that I put in my book is this idea that there are mole people who live beneath the city of Las Vegas. Uh, we don't often think about people living beneath Las Vegas. We think of people, uh, they might live in a casino, they visit casinos by the millions, uh, and the casinos are everywhere, in, including off of the Strip. You can go anywhere in Las Vegas and find a, a casino. Uh, but the idea that people are living beneath it, well, how do they do it and why? There are over 400 miles of tunnels beneath Las Vegas, and these are these are flash flood corridors that were built beneath the city because in in deserts deserts have in American deserts uh, they have monsoons, and during monsoon season that means flash flood season, and you can literally see 
the desert uh, transform. If you've ever been in a flash flood or you've you've seen a heavy monsoon rain in the desert, oh yeah, you've seen you've seen the desert almost look like it's become an ocean, an ocean of sand and mud and water, and this, what, all of all of that needs a place to go. So, they, so these tunnels were built. Well, what's interesting is people live in those tunnels and people die in those tunnels too. But there are rumored to be be between a thousand and fifteen hundred people uh, who live beneath the the neon, and and I remember photos of this family who they even had a bed, they had shelves, and the bed was built up on crates, and the shelves were built up on pallets. They had chairs down there that were built up on on pallets because there was water that was always trickling beneath along the floor, right, as the water hmm. pa- passes through. There are there's walls of graffiti. Uh, why why do people live down there? Uh, some people are you know Las Vegas was one of the most impoverished cities in America in the last few years because of the economic depression. So I believe more and more people started living underground because of that. People might live underground because of addiction. People might uh, become part of communities. You know, meet people above ground who live below ground. Some people even work in the casinos and live below ground because they maybe because of their addiction or maybe because they just want to be someplace cooler, hmm. <laughs> someplace where the temperature is not 120 degrees in the summer. So hmm. I I met this guy his name's uh, Matthew O'Brien and he wrote a book called Beneath the Neon and and before he wrote that book in the late 1990s he was exploring these tunnels. And I'd heard about him as well through some of his friends. And, uh, you know, how interesting is this idea of urban exploration? And people do urban exploration all over the world and in many major cities. And in in many places, these mole people exist. If people want to explore uh, uh, other urban legends that have to deal with, like, deal with mole people, there's an idea of, for some of the ur- urban legends around Bakersfield, California, where I'm calling you from right now, is do people live, or not live right now, but have people lived in tunnels beneath Bakersfield? Did the Chinese build extensive networks of tunnels? Some people say yes, some people say maybe. I've taken news teams down to try to discover some of these tunnels. Uh, and and people can, can uh, also explore the urban legend of the Lords of Bakersfield in my... Uh, in my novel, uh, Lord's Part One, which you can go to my website and and uh, you can actually find me as a seller on that book, which t- completely details the urban legend of the Lords of Bakersfield, which is as crazy and mysterious as, as tunnels beneath Las Vegas. Hmm. That is wonderful. I know that we took tours underneath Se- Seattle and their underground communities, or in Turkey where they have underground communities that are 18 floors deep or 13 floors deep with an amazing amount of space for, I think, for 220,000 people. And in the Mozarks, isn't that the location currently where there's the belief that they're building underground military facilities or government facilities to to be able to support people during whatever is going to happen in the United States that are tunnels a trajectory all the way across the United States to the west and to the east. So the underground living dwelling that uh, we don't much think about is we're walking on top of our land other than subways. So how interesting to be able to go around the world and say, okay, show me your underground civilization, whether it's in Florence or Rome, 
Venice, which is intriguing since it's on water. Here you're mentioning Las Vegas as well. Well, you've got some interesting stories about people as well in here. Maybe we can go into some of the gossip that you mentioned that's kind of fun and intriguing, um, both about writers in the past, the president, and um, Napoleon, actors. Which one do you want to describe? Well, I say we start with uh, Thomas Jefferson and his grandson, which uh, Thomas Jefferson one of the most wonderful leaders of, uh, of early America and the early Republic, you know, the, the drafter of the Decla- Declaration of Independence. And, uh, and Dr. Francis, you with your, ba- your background and in, in what you study, I find it completely fascinating that there are books now coming out that discuss Thomas Jefferson's mental condition and an impossible mental condition, which uh, he was a man who got would get extremely depressed and who who battled against uh, depression and and how he would deal with these long periods where he wasn't maybe drafting something like the Declaration of Independence or something like that. Um, and he had these fits of laziness where where everything around him was just loathsome. And I think um, creative people like me, I think I don't think I know a writer who doesn't go through that exact emotion where you feel like when you're not creating, you just it makes you feel lazy when you're not cre- even creating. And um, and and uh, you know writers go through depression. Writers go through all kinds of emotions. I think I think that's partly why I included Thomas Jefferson to say, hey, here's a man with a brilliant mind and he wasn't perfect. He he had some problems. He had a lot of uh, anxiety and his creative activity was rooted in his nervous organization of and and uh, he had bouts of apathy and sluggish moods and he had to fight off violent headaches. I mean, how many of us have fight off violent headaches? I raised my hand. They, they happened to me. Uh, and, um, and he's had breakdowns. But he's also had these incredible periods of intense creativity. But does that make Thomas Jefferson crazy, mad, or unintelligent? You know, because he went through these, these periods. I, I just think that it's interesting to delve into the mental health of um, the, our past leaders. I think that's kind of like we were talking about desertion earlier. I think mental mm-hmm. health is something that's sort of taboo, too, that we're not supposed to talk about. Oh, how dare we talk about that? Maybe JFK had some problems mentally or, or not saying that he did or didn't. I haven't, I haven't researched his mental health. But to me, if you go back to the founding fathers and talk about Thomas Jefferson, Wow, that's that's um, kind of kind of crazy in itself. And then there's this uh, story that was that was rumored that was told to me, and I included it in the book. And because because this book has interesting perspectives and and fun mysteries, there's the idea that can can your mental health, you know, if if you have problems, will your are your grandchildren predisposed to mental health issues? Uh, and so I talk about that a little bit because Thomas Jefferson's grandson was purportedly moved away from Thomas Jefferson. He kind of tried to hide him away, and that he he was rumored to have even murdered one of his own slaves 
with an axe for simply dropping a pitcher of water. Uh, that's that's heinous, and it's and it's just interesting thought that I'm trying to connect in the book is, do we pass these traits down, whatever they are, to our children, our grandchildren? Do we need to be aware of the mental health in our own family, and and pay attention to those things? If we if if I'm a writer and I've got you know go through all kinds of crazy emotions. Well, I've got kids who are musicians. We we actually talk about these things. We talk about how hard it is to be an artist and how we deal with emotions. It's a great way to talk to talk to my children about, hey, you know, we've got to deal with these mental issues within ourselves so that we can be as successful and healthy as we could possibly be because all artists face these problems. And do people like president past presidents, I can't imagine the pressure. I mean, we feel the pressure of deadlines. I felt the pressure of, oh, my goodness, I got to call Carol by 10 a.m., and it was 10 on the nose on my phone. I'm like, oh, what if I'm 30 seconds late? So we feel, feel these pressures. Can you imagine what a Thomas Jefferson felt? He wrote the Declaration of Independence. He was a president of the United States. What kind of pressure uh, do people feel? And I think it's interesting that, that he also said that you need to get out and do something. You need to get out and take a walk. You need to be active um, because uh, if you're not, you're going to slip into a lazy, melancholy fit that could lead you to madness if you don't just walk each day. Now, why would Thomas Jefferson say that? Probably because he experienced some of that himself and he had to get, he had to get through some of that himself. The fabulous history of constitutionals is uh, well well documented among all the high uh, academics academics as well as the politicians. So it's interesting. So you're suggesting that all human beings have their foibles, and uh, yet they can uh, they can accomplish great things no matter. Perhaps those foibles actually even help them through their life to overcome, overcome, and overcome. Well, we're nearing the end of our show, and I'm going to tell you some of my favorite ones, moving back into puzzling elements. And then I want you to choose your favorite, your favorite tidbit as well that you think uh, will let readers know that this is going to be a delightful, intriguing, aha experience while they read through your book. And again, this is from the book of People's History of the Peculiar, written by Nick Velardes, and we're speaking with Nick Velardes. And in your book, Nick... These are some of my favorites. Obesity, turmeric, which is found in curry, has many medicinal uses and helps prevent obesity in lab rats, so eat hearty. I think that's a worth one taking. Or if you have stinky toes, go put your feet into some hot water. Or perhaps uh, Gwyneth Paltrow has it best when she had the heated glasses and then she put them on her body as a way of releasing stress. Oh, you even get into PMS bloating, which will intrigue some of our our listeners, and the yeast extract from mar- Marmite. Wow, that's all the way from New Zealand that can help fight the bloating. So these type of factoids are fascinating in terms of just taking them in and saying, okay, I'll experiment with this bizarre, uh, this bizarre possibility of it working. We'll give it a try. You have uh, other things here in terms of movies, personalities, events. It's just a fascinating plethora. And in fact, I think that this is 
what you do is you collect factoids like this when you're in writer's block so that you will be able to realize that this world is a very creative, intriguing, and diverse uh, place to be. So, Nick, those are just a few of my favorite. But what, what's your favorite as we leave our show? I think that uh, one of my favorites has to do with Christopher Columbus, who, in stealing from Churchill, an author uh, once said that he was a riddle wrapped inside a mystery, inside an enigma. And we look at Christopher Columbus as a hero. And not just we, as I mean Americans, but the Western world looks at Christopher Columbus as a hero. But he's a mystery. We Do we know truly know all of his family background? No. Do we know exactly where he was born? It's unknown. Do we know exactly when? Unknown. Do we know what he even looks like? We know some mm-hmm. descriptions of him, but all these pictures, all these, paint, all these paintings, dozens and dozens of portraits, he never sat for a portrait. We don't even know what he looked like. And, inclu- and including his, the, the, his most famous voyage, his first voyage to where he discovers the new world, that ship's log, which is so important to history, has been lost. In fact, a copy oh, of it, the copy of it, the copy of the copy was lost. And the only copy we had was made by a family friend who made a copy of it by hand, but do we know if he embellished some of it? Some of it began to get written in the third person, so we don't even know what his first voyage truly was like because it's a copy of a copy of a copy. So it gets very fascinating to talk about Christopher Columbus, and I was listening to a historian very recently, uh, uh, a Columbia University historian, who was talking about some of the history of the Western world, and he actually even said, does some of the history of the Western world even matter anymore? Uh, It's a very interesting question to even propose because, of course, some of the violence and the heinous nature that comes from some of the European explorers uh, and what they would do to to Native Americans and and how Native Americans have been just left out so even though I talk about Christopher Columbus, I raised this question of does he even really matter anymore to our school cho- children? What does matter to our school children? The po- positive spins on on history, true history, and if our children are going to know about Christopher Columbus, our teachers need to know that he's a mystery. Hmm. Interesting, as if all of history is potentially an embellishment, a point of view, a fiction. Well, Nick Ballard, I thank you so much for joining us today on Dr. Carol Francis and giving us something to ponder, many things to ponder. So now, listeners, as you go about your day, remember to look at things as if they are coming from all sorts of different angles and perspectives and may not be all that you think they are. Nick, I thank you so much for joining us. And listeners, you can contact you where, Nick. What some contact get some information? Thank you. It's been wonderful to be on your show. People can find me at nicholasbelardes.com, N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S-B-E-L-A-R-D-E-S. People can find me on Twitter at Nick Bellardis on Twitter, or people can find me on Facebook. Uh, uh, send me an email. Get in touch. Uh, buy this book, and and it's a perfect book for Father's Day for a Father's Day gift. And guess what? You can uh, probably add some of your own tidbits of bizarreness, and Nick might include that in his next book. Who knows? You can also find him on Amazon.com. And with that, listeners, enjoy your day. Look at the world from intrigue.
there's oddities out there for you to enjoy. Be well, everybody. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.